This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. So we're back again for a special episode where we get to interview an expert. Now we're going to continue a conversation about property. For our newbies to our show, Talk Money To Me is a podcast where we draw on our extensive expertise and experience to help educate you on all aspects of your financial landscape. But we recommend checking on our previous Need To Know episode before actually delving into this interview. Yeah, very good tip, Felicity. And as we'll be chatting about wealth, investing and making money, let's be honest, that's our favourite topic. Even though we are registered financial advisors at Shoreham Partners, please note the podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. The content on the podcast today is general in nature and you should seek appropriate professional advice before making any of your financial decisions. So essentially, guys, if you want to chat about your personal finances and situations, head over to our brand new and super exciting website, which is called CFT Advisory Group Offshore and Partners. And the web handle is www.cftgroup.com.au. And if you're not able to write those details down, these details will be in the show notes below. So in last week's episode, we chatted more about the finer details of when it comes to buying property, like what principal and interest is, what an offset account is versus a redraw facility. And we also spoke about a few more structures in which you can purchase property like a self-managed super fund. Now, in today's episode, we want to continue exploring the various financial strategies to purchase property with our expert and also hear his insights into lending finance and the property space. So with that in mind, we're very excited to have Chris Bates from Wealthful on the show, one of Australia's best mortgage brokers in the Financial Professional Australia's top 10. Hi, Candice. Hi, Felicity. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks for joining us. So all you have to do really, Chris, is Google your name and you kind of pop up everywhere, you know, with your articles and insights and your experience in the mortgage broking industry. And also that's how I stumbled across your latest episode, The Elephant in the Room. Curious to know, why did you call it The Elephant in the Room? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, uh, I'm doing it with a buyer's agent who's quite vocal as well and we sort of have lots of frustrations. We started over three years ago and around the things that weren't getting talked about in the property market and um, it's completely unregulated and that's probably the first thing for anyone thinking about the property market, need to really understand that there's zero buyer protection and no one's really watching what anyone says or does. And so you can walk into an investment property specialist and they can sell you the dream, tell you things that aren't true. And there's you can't ever go back to them and say, hang on a sec, I bought that property and I've now lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, et cetera. So that is just so many elements of the property market we thought weren't, weren't getting discussed. And that's what we came up with the elephant in the room. And then uh, we had a bit of fun with it, created like a Dumbo of the Week story and you know, had some amazing Indian music on there. And um, yeah, we just took it a bit next level. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was good fun. 
That's fun. And I guess to give some more context before we dive into today's conversation with Chris, let me just provide our audience with some more background in how you came about in the world of mortgage broking and and how you got there today. So Chris, you started your career as a financial advisor like us back in the UK in, in 2007, just before the GFC hit. Good timing there. Working with obviously your clients over there before you decided to come back to Australia. So fast forward to 2014, Chris left the financial advice world and, you know, kind of joined the dark side. <laughs> just, just, just kidding. Um, but you left, you left financial advice service to start up Wealthful, which is your business, yeah. in a plan to change the way Australians take action with their financial plans and wealth, you know, incorporating property and mortgage broking. Yeah. So Felicity wasn't exaggerating when she said earlier that you are one of Australia's leading mortgage brokers. In fact, Wealthful, your company, was ranked ninth out of 16,000 brokers in Australia during 2020. So well done, Chris, on that achievement, especially during COVID. When I was doing a bit of stalking before our chat, uh, Chris, <laughs> to prepare for this interview, what really resonated with me in, in all of your kind of insights uh, and podcasts and blogs is that you seem to have the same message that you believe the role of sound financial advice is to help your clients maximize true wealth, not just financial wealth. So let me start off with that. What do you mean by true wealth? It's, it's an interesting one. I, my biggest frustration, we're actually going to do a rebrand actually because of this problem is that wealth misused in terms of a number and a figure and we, you know, determine our own self-worth based on a number. And I think it's just so wrong. I think you know, the pursuit of money is meaningless, really. It's a pursuit of living a great life and that means different things and time and energy and family and community and connection and belonging and so many different things. And I think that's my frustration is it's a wealth management industry, but it completely ignores the fact that wealth really just a tool to live a good life. And um, it also puts a number on, you know, how successful you are is based on that number. And just it's a big frustration. I think that you know, people need to take control of money, but take control of it for reasons that matter to them. And everyone lives a different life. And, and it's just really sort of, you know, waking people up a little bit and saying, you know, what do you really want out of life? What's that going to cost? And surprisingly, it doesn't cost as much as people think. Um, a lot of things in life are free, actually. So um, that's sort of what I was trying to do when I was really focused the business advice business around sort of dragging people in a better direction I felt around money and um yeah, I mean, and all, since 2012, it's all been young couples and families. And we, we stopped working with older clients um, back then, which is traditionally where a lot of financial advisors work. And um, I really love helping, you know, young people. And that's why we focused on the property decision because we think that that's their biggest challenge, you know, realistically around, you know, getting their first home or paying down debt or, you know, upgrading, renovating, et cetera. And so, yeah, we get that sort of blank canvas. So that's sort of the, the long answer to what true wealth is, is, is so much more than just money. No, I love that. And I think you've touched on a a really key point that we always chat about is the misconception or the myth bust in financial services. You don't have to have a lot of money or be uber wealthy in order to seek financial advice, right? Whether it's about buying property or investing in the markets, purchasing shares, you need to start somewhere, right? And that's I love that about what you just described because that's what you're doing. You're helping, you know, the younger generations get into the property market, which is a scary thing. And And the earlier that you start, honestly, the better, realistically. It's like we've both worked with mortgage brokers and we actually know how valuable they are. But why do you think people should work with a broker to purchase property rather than just going to the bank directly? Look, it's obviously I'm very biased. I'm a mortgage <laughs> broker, right? So, you know, I'm going to be able to fight the, uh, the good fight for brokers. But, you know, there's really three options. You go direct to a bank. You go online or you go to a broker. Um, 
And, you know, the problems with going online or directly to the bank versus a broker is you are going to get general advice. It's not someone's going to personally say, look, you should, should you even be doing this? You know, should you structure your loan this way? You know, do you know that another bank's got a better deal than this, et cetera? So you're walking in and you're just going to have to know everything yourself because you're not going to get any advice. And you've got to hope that your knowledge is is the best, right? But really why you want to go to a broker is that advice. Now, in fairness to all brokers, they're not all equal. The reality is some brokers are writing very little and got very exp- little experience and um, are very much focused on a transaction. And then you've got brokers at the other end that are writing a lot of loans, seeing a lot of people, got lots of experience and actually seeing themselves as trusted advisors. So assuming you go to one of those trusted advisor type of brokers is why would you engage them? Firstly, it's that advice. You know, they can explain to you, you know, is this the right decision? Should you structure your loan? You know, relationships with different people that they may know in terms of buyers agents. But what you get from a broker is the relationship, you know, the relationship to set you up in this thing, but also the next thing, you know, if you go into a bank, um, we all know how bank staff work. If you're great, you get moved on. And so it's very hard to get a relationship in a bank because they're not the business owner. They're not going to be there for 10 years, et cetera. So the other thing is, is it does protect you if things go wrong. You know, we've had clients who have gone to banks and, uh, and online lenders. They thought they knew everything. Things hit the fan and then they're like, what do we do? And they rush to a broker, whether it's a low valuation or it's an issue with their income or something. And so a broker has that choice to sort of send you out in the market as well. So we haven't got the same toolkit. We've got a much greater toolkit than if you're at a digital or, an, or a bank. So it's really that partnership and the relationship. Similar as a financial advisor, you know, rather than using a digital financial advisor or something, it's that relationship, that go-to person that you can go, you know, Felicity or Candice, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And they know your situation. They know what? No, 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 no. Go back to your plan, which we know that's happened yeah. all the time. <laughs> the sounding board. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're really that sounding board, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, robo advice versus, you know, your personal trusted advisor. So run us through typical questions you'd ask a new client before you actually start talking to the banks in regards to their lending scenario. Yeah, absolutely. There's two parts. There's obviously the numbers, you know, income, PR with your, um, you know, what your savings you've got, what your debts you've got, what are you spending? I mean, that's all easy stuff. And that's just sort of basically filling in a fact fine. The real questions a broker should be asking, and this is not just me, but any broker, is really getting to know you and your life. Like, you know, are you single? Are you in a couple? Are you a new relationship, old relationship? Are you thinking about kids? You know, where your family live? Like, you know, what's what's your sort of needs with family, you know, from a lifestyle point of view? You know, what type of, where are you going to live longer term? What's going to happen with work? It's all these sort of soft facts. It's that life planning discussion that, you know, good brokers should be asking you because if your situation is likely to change, especially in the short or medium term, and you make a big property decision, it's a lumpy asset, it's very expensive. It's not like buying some shares, mm. you can get in and out with very little um, buy and sell costs um, and you can always wake up tomorrow and change your mind. With property, you can't do that. So you've really got to think through those short-term, medium-term lifestyle changes and be planning for those rather than just sort of trying to get into the market because the FOMO is taking over and parents and sisters and colleagues are telling you just to buy anything. So that's what good brokers do is those life planning chats. And that's a really interesting and good point because, you know, it is, it's buying a property, right? It's buying a home, but, or an investment property, and it can be emotional, right? So like you've said, identifying, yes, I'm buying this home because it's my dream home. I'm about to start a family, all these things. It's giving you more insights. Do you use those, um, I guess, client goals and clients insights to help when you come to the negotiation table, so to speak, with the banks and with the lenders, like talk us through how you actually now go, okay, I'm now talking to the bank on on their behalf. 
What's the conversation like with them? Yeah, it's a good question. Like you would think that the banks would really care about character and context and, you know, what the client's longer-term goals are. The reality is banks are like credit assessors. It is really a tick-the-box exercise. And even with credit, like you either got good credit, um, which is normal credit, or you've got bad credit and something's gone wrong. Like they don't really care if you've had 10 credit cards and you paid them off. They don't really, it's just like literally a number. Mm, it's like a so different to all their marketing messages, hey? <laughs> exactly. So really what you're trying to do when you present an application, you are trying to present them in good light. And this is something that I think the best brokers do really well is they they do put those soft facts in there. We do a quite a comprehensive, you know, cover letter with our application. And we talk about those things, you know. You know, Johnny does so-and-so, he's been doing it for so-and-so years, he gets big bonuses, Mary does this, and um, and, and we, if, we, if there's any issues with their file that the bank's going to be worried about, as they're going through all the documents, they, we, we identify that issue and we put in um, what we call an alleviating factor in terms of something that's going to calm the assessor down to know that we've thought about it and this is how a client's going to get around it. And, though, and that cover letter really sets the assessor up on the right foot because they look at the loan and go, oh, yeah, that broker's presented everything perfectly and he's told me the issues. I'm actually feeling positive about this one, whereas if they get in there and there's no notes, bang, they see an issue, they start freaking out and they're already on the decline button um, rather than the uh, let's get this, this, this approved. So you're being proactive, which is great. And I guess in your last um, podcast episode, you touched on the last couple of property booms that Australia has seen in 2012. You mentioned you know, it was more of an investor's lending issue and then there were, it led to the credit crunch in the Royal Banking Commission of like 2018, 2019. I guess those events kind of led to the regulator change their tact, right? What's the difference this time around in the current COVID property boom that we all keep hearing about? Like how has the landscape changed, do you think, from the bank's perspective? Oh, so it's definitely tightened up dramatically in 2020 or 2021 versus what it was in 2012 to 2015. Lending was like super relaxed. Like you could borrow 10, 12 times your income, which is astronomical, right? And, you know, if you knew how to play calculators um, across different banks, you could even increase it even more. There were so many gaps in bank lending policy. And, you know, investors who were going to brokers who knew how to play, you know, bank. The game. And you know, basically, yeah. The Hunger Games with the banks, right? Yeah, this property boom. You know, you know, these people buying property every year, all that sort of stuff. Well, they potentially could because there were so many holes in bank policy. Now, APRA came in in the last boom and said, no, 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 need to fix that up, fix that. And they went literally lender by lender and looked at how they do things. Things haven't gone back to like they were. You know, you can really only borrow six times salary now. It's much harder to get a loan approved on big multiples like than it was in the previous boom. What's happened recently is just because owner-occupiers are so in, um, encouraged to take on a lot of debt at the moment because rates are just astronomically low, we've seen this you know, just demographics. People are just getting older. They're having kids. They just want a home or they're a new couple. They just want to buy their first place. Plus years and years of pent-up migration. You've just got all these people entering the property market and trying to upgrade. And that's what's causing prices to, to go, you know, so high. It's because people have the confidence to borrow a lot of money because rates are low. And what APRA is just worried is that there's just so little properties on the market. There's, you know, and that's the thing. There's only, you know, 4 or 5% of properties ever sell every year. And you've got all these people competing on that small number of properties, causing prices to go down. So the only thing they can really do is increase interest rates, which would, you know, make people go, oh, actually, you know what, maybe I shouldn't borrow this money. Um, which is really hard for the RBA to do for lots of different reasons, or they can cut how much people can borrow. And so what they've just done recently is reduce how much people can borrow by a very small amount, only 5%. 
um, and they should have went much harder. They've really missed the trick there. Right. Those are so great insights. So I guess that actually kind of leads into our next question and the question that's on everyone's lips. You know, all of our clients are wanting to know, are rates going to go up? Should we fix it now? What are your thoughts? And, you know, what are you doing for your clients? Look, we've been fixing pretty hard for most clients all through 2020 and all through this year. And it was a bit of a no-brainer, to be honest. It's not like we're sort of uh, great at forecasting. The fixed rates were just so far under the variable rate. We're talking like 50, 60 uh, basis points and RBA is at pretty much zero mm. anyway. And so it's been a great bet to fix. Just in the last couple of weeks, in, you know, in October now, um, fixed rates have started to rise very, very slightly, like 10 basis points, you know. Um, per year not like they've gone from you know two percent to three percent so it's still an amazing bet to fix you know that you know, who knows when rates are going to rise the rba is saying 2024 i mean the market's saying even maybe next year um, and we just don't know how fast it's going to rise the problem is is that when i was working in the uk rates went to zero back in 2008 and uh, they're still zero and you know the problem is is that it's going to be really hard for them to increase rates dramatically unless the rest of the world's increasing interest rates especially because when you look at the amount of debt Australians are in and the world to be honest governments corporates etc every increase in interest rate is going to be massively deflationary it's going to encourage people to to be a bit more conservative especially if they happen quite fast a couple in a couple of months or something will freak people out and so it's really hard for the RBA to increase interest rates. And that, but absolutely, they're going, they're going to. They're not going to try to keep it at this level forever. It's just really how far they increase them. If they only go up, you know, from 0.1 to 1%, that's not really going to slow much down, to be honest. It's whether they go up more like 3 to to 4 to 5%, that's when you'll really see that real tightening happening. Yeah, no, that's great. For your clients in, you know, last year, were you fixing for two years, three years, five years? I mean, obviously, if you can fix for five years, that's a lot better, right? Because it gives you a bit more guarantee. Um, but were the five-year rates as attractive as the two and three year? It's interesting. It's a really good question. So usually the longer you fix, if you make the bet right, the bet will pay off more because you've got more months that you're potentially going to save money, you know, by fixing. And so absolutely, when the rates were at the absolute lowest, you could have got five-year fixed rates under 2%. And we had, depending, we had really good clarity on their personal situation. The problem with fixed rates is you can't offset them. So you've got to be very careful you don't overfix and you can potentially have big break fees. And so we were fixing under five years, but then they got expensive. Then we fixed under four years, sub 2%. Then they got expensive. Then we started fixing under three years. They got expensive. Um, well, no, to be honest, we're still fixing under three years now. And for some clients, they're starting to get a bit more expensive. So now two-year fixed rates are, are potentially a good bet for clients. And so it is always changing, and that's the thing. It's um, We can see where there's a good place to enter. Okay, so All the banks have different fixed rates. All of them have different variable rates. Depending on how much you're fixing and how much you've got variable, right, this could be a good lender for you um, to save you that small sort of interest margin over another lender. And do you find that you're fixing more for investors or more for owner-occupiers at the moment? It's usually about the same, to be honest, because the, the thing at the moment is that investment fixed rates are just so low, um, you know, especially their interest-only investment rates. Like, I mean, we got NAB just increased this morning, but, you know, till then, till this morning, you could get 2.59 for three years investment interest only, which is just such a good rate. And so a lot of investors are usually more likely to fix if the rates are good, um, just because they know then their cash flow for the next three or four years is is okay. And also because you want to be paying off your home loan exactly rather than investment property. So you probably want to be using your offset account on that more rather than, and tax deductible debt, et cetera. So 
um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it is really interesting. And I guess leading on from that, um, so what are the lenders saying at the moment? You know, are you finding some being more favorable and easy to work with? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's always changing. Banks have got um, problems with um, they need credit assessors um, to assess the loans, and there's you know they've got to have people on seats really, whether they do it here or overseas. And then they have these, you know, great offers and then they flood their credit assessors and they get really busy and then they've got to like package the deal up and solicitors and things like that. And so unfortunately, a lot of the banks have had enormous flows. Like we're talking almost double the applications in the last 12 to 18 months than they would usually see. So you need double credit assessors, you need double lawyers, you need et cetera. A lot of the banks got flooded and, and there's a lot of the banks offshore their credit teams and have their back office processing. Uh, we all know what's happened the last two years with COVID and shutdowns in Philippines and India and all these sort of locations. Um, and so as a broker, we're always assessing that and going, right, if we've got speeds an issue here, whether they're just purchased or they want a pre-approval fast or they need to do a quick refinance because they want to buy an investment property, turnaround times and who's easy to deal with absolutely is a big part of our decision for the client um, because great rates are very similar across the banks. You know, you, if you're not going to reprice uh, price your product, way more than the market because you know you're never going to get any business. So rates are usually quite close across the industry. But when you've got big loans, you know, 10 basis points or 20 basis points, it's only a very small difference, but on big loans, it's a lot of it's a lot of money. You know, it definitely is. And I guess follow-up question from that, I know some lenders are a bit more favourable to the self-employed versus the employed. So how do you figure out which lender is the best fit for each client before you go into to, to conversations with them? Look, there's probably two different types of self-employed. There's ones that are just newly self-employed. They might be a doctor or you know, contracting for a company, um, which is very common in the IT space. You know, certain banks have, have um, look at those type of structures and those type of industries uh, a bit more favorably and they don't see them as traditional self-employed. The other thing is traditional sort of business owner. They are discriminated on and, and if you are in a job and you're thinking about starting the business, you've got to really be careful at that point because going to a broker after you've just started a business, it's highly unlikely you're going to be able to borrow money for at least two or three years. Um, because you need your ABN usually for two years and your business usually takes, you have a lot of costs up front and so that wipes out your first year's profit. So, you know, a lot of the, some banks will just look at the last 12 months of your financials versus the last two um, and taking an average or the lower year. And so it does change. Some clients have had a, not a great 2021 or 2020 and their 2019 is better. So an average is better and or sometimes the last year is amazing versus the year before. And so we just have to look at their financials and say, right, this is actually a lender who's going to look at your situation better than someone who averages or someone who looks at the lower of two years, et cetera. So I guess, Candice, we're not going to be able to get another property for another year because we're one year in to the new business. <laughs> so in a moment, we're going to be chatting more about the current lenders, the financial landscape, and hear Chris's thoughts about the future of the mortgage broking as an industry. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So in your experience, Chris, how has the lending landscape changed over the years? You know, in the past decade or so, we've seen the rise of non-traditional banks. They're becoming the more preferred lenders, you know, neobanks, smaller lenders. Do you think they're taking up more of the market share these days? And, you know, effectively, are people falling out of love at the big end of town? To a certain extent, yes, but it's nowhere near as um, the big four do own the market, you know, and they keep buying people that um, potentially are doing well. You know, NAB's bought a couple of neobanks, um, Westpac have bought, you know, brokers, et cetera. And so uh, the big big banks, are I don't think they're going anywhere and they've got the market pretty much sewn up, to be honest. And you do have little you know, great innovation coming from some of these digital lenders and what they're forcing them to do. And COVID, unfortunately, the the big four love to be, um, you know, really hard to refinance. They love their processes to be quite clunky and the experience to be bad because the people go, I don't want to go through that again. So they just stay there. And that's ultimately what they're trying to do. They they play on their apathy and just so they're going to not um, want to ever refinance. And the banks make all their money on existing customers. They make not that much money on new customers until they they get lazy themselves. And so, um, absolutely, I love all these new lenders. I love how they're, they're forcing the banks to get better with IT and digital. And all the banks have come kicking and streaming. They've all got digital docs now. They've all got, um, you know, much better at their sort of application process, et cetera. Um, and, you know, these digital banks, et cetera, their market share and what they actually write is so minuscule on the marketplace. And whenever they get good, um, the big end of town buy them up. Um, and so um, I love them for the innovation, um, but I don't think they're really going to dent into the, um, the the big market share really overnight. It, they've just their products are usually quite restricted in terms of when you go to these digital lenders is they they won't do self-employed. They won't do at 90%. They won't do any issues with credit. They won't do very vanilla loans. Um, and, you know, everyone's got some sort of, you know, uh, kink to their application, something where it's like, oh, I need to get that check with the bank. Um, and so they don't suit everyone, unfortunately. We do love them as well. You just got to also careful with um, these lenders as well, which is this is not me sort of talking down digital lenders at all. It's just the real risk with um, digital lenders is that their funding lines are very restrictive. They're only in a certain thing. And that funding line can change in terms of the cost. And so if you are using a digital lender, you also want to have a backup plan. If things go get more expensive for you, you refinance to a better lender. So you just got to make sure you're always in a position to refinance just to protect yourself. Yeah, very good point. Which means you can't do a fixed rate, right? Because if you refinance and you've got a fixed rate, there'd be breaking costs. Am I right, Chris? 
Absolutely. So you do need to be careful with a fixed rate because if you come off the end of a fixed rate and you stay and then you haven't got a job or you start a business and then the variable rate jumps up on you because they have a problem with their funding line, you could start to see some issues here. And this is what we've seen it with non-banks and even some of the big end have, have had issues with this as well. And so, um, yeah, you always got to be conscious of how your change situation may affect your ability to refinance because you don't want to become a bit of a mortgage prisoner and stuck at a bank paying a higher rate, which we've seen many times. That's really good. We might have to steal that off you. <laughs> I just want to circle back as you've touched on a really key point uh, that I just want to hone in on that is, you know, you mentioned like if your circumstances are going to change, you've got to really have a plan in place, right? And one thing that we always chat about, particularly with our, you know, kind of 50 plus client bracket, you know, they're thinking about maybe retiring soon and leaving the workforce. Maybe they want to buy another property in their self-managed super fund. And we always say to them, well, hang on a minute, you're really great in terms of you looking on paper, super serviceable from the bank's perspective before you leave the world of certainty and income coming in on a regular basis. So that's one thing that we always chat about. And I guess that leads to the next part of the conversation is we've noticed that in the SMSF lending space, it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher. They just don't like to do it, the banks these days. So why do you think that is, Chris? Look, I think the writing on the wall for um, gearing superannuation, uh, it's, it hasn't worked. You know, there's unfortunately a property market. Uh, Australians love property, right? And Australians hate their super, you know, the reality is. And so if you can put your super into property, you've got the great result. And this was spruced heavily for the last five years. Um, you know, I've been to home buyer expos and the biggest people spending the most amount of money um, are the SMSF sort of. Um, and so APRA know about this and that uh, it hasn't been working. People have been blowing up their super funds, buying poor assets. Um, and, um, you know, I think the issue is, is that the writing's on the wall. All the banks pulled out of it, um, you know, a few years ago now because they knew that, you know, there's been multiple parliamentary inquiries saying that it's not a good idea. Uh, that's why the banks don't want to do it. In saying that, though, we've seen a shift in the last 12 months where lenders are starting to offer better rates on self-managed super funds. You know, they've all of a sudden more lenders are coming into the space. And so I thought it was dead. I thought it was going to get uh, basically outlawed, I guess, and you couldn't gear your super funds, especially into property. But it seems like that sort of ship sailed. So maybe it's going to be okay. So we're really you know, careful. We do very little self-managed super fund loans. The reason is we just don't think it's a great idea for many people. You know, we're very careful about them buying lumpy assets when they're getting close to retirement. You know, you generally want to have an income stream, etc. So, yeah, we, we're, we're very careful around self-managed super funds. You need to have all your ducks lined up, we feel, to, to you know, want to help a client do that loan. I mean, there have been you know, quite dodgy advisors in the past, right, that would refer clients with a self-managed super fund, recommend they set one up, then refer them um, for like a house and land package, for example. The advisor gets a big kickback. It's yeah. not a good investment, right? But it can work really well for potentially some commercial spaces. But, you know, it, again, like Chris said, it really does need to be for the right um, investment, for the right person. I think you made you hit the nail on the head, which I didn't say, Felicity. It is amazing in the commercial space, especially if you're a business owner and um, if you can start to play. And, and, and commercial is always a better asset potentially when you get to retirement, better income streams, et cetera. And so I agree. It would be a shame for a lot of self-employed business owners that, that if that sort of change happens. Uh, but when you're buying residential, um, you do usually get lower yields and then you do get the property spruikers in there pushing new property. And for all your listeners, if you're thinking about buying new property, I definitely think you should potentially look at alternative options and, and really investigate that world and, and consider just buying an established property that's scarce, that's likely to grow. 
rather than some new build. Yeah, definitely. You've kind of we've kind of already touched on this. You know, what are the banks looking for when addressing self-managed super funds, trusts, and buying personally? The difference is, you know, obviously at the self-managed super fund, they're looking at super contributions. The trust, do they look at the trust returns as well? You know, as personal returns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they will want to look at your full situation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's you've got to be also careful with trust as well. You know, like it's, you know, a lot of people have been sold trust for the sake of it. Um, and it's also about saying, really, what are you trying to achieve here? Is it asset protection? How is it going to protect you? Is buying a property in this trust going to create lending issues? And so, yeah, you just don't just sort of fall for the just have a trust on every property. You know, you've really got to make sure it's working for you. And uh, Fantastic. Well, what is the biggest frustration or I guess positive aspect you're seeing when dealing with the current lenders? I mean, do you, what's kind of positive now? What's negative now? You know, what are you kind of seeing? Look, I mean, we've always got frustrations with banks and um, solicitors. Getting yourself a good conveyance is a, is a problem we're seeing a lot at the moment. Um I mean, probably a frustration thing, and this is not to talk down to any of our clients, but it's just a learning for people who are thinking about buying something in the property market is get your admin sorted way earlier than you're hoping to buy a property. You know, you I guess if you fall in love with a property, you're in the market, you've you know just started a conversation with a broker or bank and you really want the speed is everything when you're trying to buy property. So I think the real frustration for clients is just them not shooting themselves in the foot really. Um and, you know, making sure that they've got their admin sorted, they've got their pre-approval well ahead as what they want to enter the market, understand all those things around structuring and things like that prior to looking at buying property because you've got to make quick decisions and you need to make sure your lending sorted. So, um, but there's always frustrations with banks. Um, we're always sort of uh, scratching our head and going, we wish this wasn't an issue. And some banks fix them and then a month later they've still got the same issue. How many times have you actually had a client come to you, Chris, saying, I've just bought a property on the weekend at an auction but I don't have my finance? <laughs> Do you have that? And you're like, oh, no, we have to get it ASAP. It does happen. Surprisingly, you would think that. And sometimes the people who um, do that, they think they're no issue to a bank. We had one last week, um, you know, but the problem is he went, uh, started his own company. He's a contractor. He has a lot of money in contracting space. He's got great assets and just assumes that because he's on a great day rate uh, and he's got lots of assets, he can borrow a lot of money. The problem is he's now seen as a self-employed. And so um, we see it when people are usually sometimes, um, you know, doing well financially, but then they don't understand that banks won't like something about their situation. They could have swapped jobs, you know, you could have a high bonus paying job to a new job that's likely to pay a big bonus, but there's no track record. And so, but they've just bought a property and they're swapped jobs at the same time. And so it's these type of issues where, um, yeah, people can really sort of shoot themselves in the foot. Um, I wanted to ask your insights because we actually caught up with Simon Cohen from Lux Listing on our last interview um, podcast episode. And he mentioned a really interesting point that during COVID, literally 90% of what he's buying, be it, you know, the top end of town, right? Those, you know, really Bondi, right? Yeah. If we drill it down, he's just mainly <laughs> in Bondi. But he said because of COVID, 90% is actually off market. Are you seeing that as well? Are you seeing things just rush through the, the lack of supply in terms of what's available to buy? Look, in fairness to Simon, I, this has nothing to do with him, but I do think it's a bit of a fallacy that buyers agents um, push off markets. I think the reality is you can see online what sells off market. You can go onto the 
uh, New South Wales government website and see exactly what's selling in the suburb. And so if you really want to know what's selling off market, do the research in your own suburb and you can see exactly what's selling. The reality is off markets are a catch-22 for the vendor. If you've got a great property, why would you sell it off market when you can get lots of hungry buyers that are desperate? More competition, right? In the high-end space, it's a bit different. People want privacy. People want to know that transaction and the number um, they can potentially have, you know, buyers pre-approved and saves them the open homes and things like that. But, you know, a buyer's agents pushing off market, this is not against Simon, is something that I believe great buyer's agents don't do it. The reality is um, good property, if it's selling off market, um, usually the vendor wants too much money um, or a lot of the off-market stuff's pretty average. It's not presentable for sale and it won't go to market. And so be very careful signing up buyer's agents for off-markets. What you sign up a buyer's agent for is the relationship with the local real estate agents and their expertise in the local market. That is why you hire them because their expertise in the market and their relationship will ideally help you see a property first. Maybe it's off-market, but maybe it's pre-market. Pre-market's when it's not on the market yet, but it's going to go on the market. And so an buyer's agent more likely to get you in first they're more likely to hear the truth from the agent and what the actual situation is and what it's likely to sell for. And they're more likely to be get the favourable one who gets the contract signed because the real estate agent's conflicted. They're more likely to want to work with a, a buyer's agent and they're going to see it another open home in a couple of weeks than a, a buyer they might only see one every 10 years. And so they, they usually like to work with great buyer's agents. And so that's my sort of spiel on buyer's agents. But, you know, and there's not many that have been doing it five, ten years. Simon's one of those. Simon's been doing it a long time and he knows his market, the high-end market. You've got to find someone who's super experienced and, and not being doing it for two minutes because you don't want to outsource your, one of your biggest financial decisions to someone who's still sort of learning the ropes um, mm. and you usually pay a lot of money for them anyway. Yeah, good point. So changing tunes slightly, in terms of the trends being a business owner in your industry, right? Yeah. What are you seeing in the space going forward? So in the past, you know, it was mainly dominated by the banks. We talked about that. Now, you know, Yellow Brick Road, Mortgage Choice and Aussie Homes. Do you see a trend of more and more brokers, you know, kind of teaming up together and going out on their own? Sort of like what you've done with Wellful? Um, yes. So the the big banks are um, all really struggling to get through their branches because the consumer has made a decision that they think that brokers are a better choice than going to the bank. Every year, the broker market share gets bigger. So it was 20%, then it went to 40%. Now it's at 60%. And, you know, uh, obviously I'm very conflicted here, but I do think it's going to keep on rising. Every quarter, the stats keep going more brokers than banks, right? So the big banks are struggling because they're, they're, no one goes to branches anymore, right? And so... Um, they're, so the, the battle is moving towards brokers. Now, brokers are in two different camps. You've got franchise models, which is the Aussies, the Yellow Brick Roads, those mortgage choice. Unfortunately, they're still pretty much high street street presence and they're really struggling, to be honest. Aussie sold to a big company called Lendy. Mortgage choice share price has really struggled. You know, YBR, we know issues they've had there, et cetera. I think the franchise model uh, in terms of the way they take so much off brokers, et cetera, new good brokers don't want to go down that model. Even places like Loan Market um, uh, basically bringing their own, uh, you can be your own, don't have to use Loan Market brand, et cetera. So the, the independent space, absolutely. There is definitely scale benefits of brokers coming together. Unfortunately, it's still usually a one-man band, but there is definitely organisations out there yep. that are getting lots of good 
you know, high-performing independent brokers together and they're, um, they're growing businesses together. And so I do see there'll be a, a joining of, of top brokers together, but it will still be a lot of a one-man band show and then there'll be these really bigger independents that are growing, that are, um, you know, benefiting from scale. Yeah, and like we've worked with some of the independents that have grown significantly and, you know, a lot of the mortgage brokers we actually work with are independents and, you know, I've got a good, really good relationship with them. They know their clients really well and, you know, they kind of work with us to get the best outcome for the client because at the end of the day, you really should have financial advisor working on your team, a mortgage broker on your team, solicitor and accountant all actually working together to get the very best outcome, right? Because we can't be experts in everything. And I guess this kind of leads to another question, you know, coming back to helping your everyday Australian borrow funds, you know, whether it's their first home, buy an investment property or commercial real estate, what's the best advice, Chris, that you can give them? I think the best advice in life is actually really simple, right? Um, And, you know, that's what I think a financial advisor, good financial advisors do is they simplify your situation, right? You need to focus on these three things, right? Um, And I think when you're talking about property, there's two elements. Um, I think you really need to think through your life and your plan and making sure that you're buying this for the right reasons and it's going to set you up for whatever you want to do after that. Um, you know, And so if your life plan changes from single to couple to family, you're going to have a property that's going to be able to evolve and renovate and to suit you rather than just buying something for today and then three years later you go, oh, we want kids and you know now you have to move out of the apartment, et cetera. So thinking through your longer-term plan, making sure your property um, aligns to that. The second thing is, is you really need to educate yourself on the property market. You know, like the share market, you know, companies move in different rates, right, and, and percentages. For example, now the whole comp- – you think right now every property in the country is booming. There's parts of Australia that are actually fallen. You know, a lot of apartment markets in capital cities have done nothing. Um, and so you really need to make sure you understand the property market. The, around the property market, you really need to understand that new property – it's generally not as good as established property because new property is not limited by supply. Property is priced based on its scarcity and its desirability. How, how, who wants to own it and live in it? And so educate yourself. Firstly, on making a great life decision in terms of the type of property, but then also when you're looking at the property, make sure it's a great investment in terms of a property um, and educate yourself there before you enter. Then you can structure your loans right. Then you can get a great rate, all those sort of things. The real key thing, and this is what we focus on as mortgage brokers, we can get you a loan, but what we care about is you're actually using that loan to make a great decision. Um, and then we try to not lose you for life because we know you've made a great decision and you'll always that's come it back. for the next one. Uh, and so that's the best advice I can give is, is think through your life, make sure really strategic about what you buy, potentially even take on more debt than you would um, you didn't think you would because if that's going to mean that you don't have to upgrade in a few years or that's going to get you a better asset that you could potentially renovate or um, then it's not about the amount of debt you take, it's about the quality of asset and the suitability to your life. No, that's it because you don't want to be buying a new property every couple of years and paying that stamp duty again, do you? I mean, Candice and I probably both did that. We stretched ourselves a little bit when we bought our second place and it, um, it's you know paid off really, um, because, you know, interest rates continue to decrease. It was really good timing for us. Um, but those are fantastic thoughts and insights. So thank you for that. I think what I was just in awe listening to you at that moment, because 
really what you said is yeah. it's a fluid investment decision at the end of the day. So you've got to be able to move with life moments and it's long term, you know, don't think short term, which is exactly what we talk about and educate our clients on a day-to-day basis. When you're buying any investment, whether it's property, listed shares, ETFs, whatever, it's always long term and you have to have a fluid moving financial plan, right? You've got to be able to adapt because life's messy, stuff happens. Um, and you know, you got to be able to move with it, right? No one lives in next chapter, next chapter, next chapter type of life. And a lot of our clients say come into a lump of cash and they're like, fantastic, Candice, we'll see, what should I do? We naturally think, all right, well, let's just not rush into buying another property. You know, Aussies, unfortunately, do fall in love with property, like you said, but nine times out of 10, that's where the conversation kind of leads to. And we bring them back to think, well, do you need to pay down property debt? You know? What what can we do about super? Do we want to put money into super? Do we need to diversify your wealth more? Should we go into the share market? So keen to hear your thoughts here on this you know great debate as Aussies, shares versus property. Obviously, your bias, you're a mortgage broker, but coming back to that point, you know, holistic approach. I guess if someone came to you, Chris, I got an extra hundred grand. I want to buy property. Do you go, well, hold the horse. Let's chat Where about. Where are you buying things. that property? <laughs> Absolutely, it's a real. Um- yeah, I mean, because I was a financial advisor for so long, I mean, I was, it was 13 years, right? And we were uh, mortgage brokers for the last eight, nine. Um, you know, we, we, and we saw lots of clients at different ages. I started out with the 80s and 70-year-olds and then went 60s. And I feel like as I got more experience, I went younger and younger. But, you know, and it really is a life stage thing. You know, if a client came to me when I was an advisor and I was in my 60s, I'd be like, why are you looking at property? You know, like I'd much prefer to be maximizing my super, you know, having a commercial property potentially, you know, diversifying my share portfolio I can sell down in retirement. Uh, even clients in their 50s, like if you've got a five, 10-year runway to retirement, I just don't know whether residential property is the, really the best asset. You know, I, I think you, especially if you've got lots of equity in your house, maybe you can do, you know, more shares, et cetera. So, I do think it's definitely tilted, um, you know, residential to younger generations. Um, the reason it's potentially better than uh, shares for younger generations to build wealth is due to leverage. And the reality is if you've got a $150,000 um, and you're earning a couple hundred grand a year as a couple, you could go and buy a million-dollar property, right, or even a bit more than that, right? And, you know, you can get a million-dollar asset growing for you, um, compounding, potentially even tax-free because it's your home versus if you buy a share portfolio, you've got to pay capital gains tax. It's very hard to leverage it anywhere near that amount and you'd be very um, hard to be confident to leverage it even double or triple. Um and, you know, and that's sort of the reasons why property makes sense. Um, secondly, then you've got the lifestyle benefit with, you know, family and security and stability um, and things like that. So it's a life stage thing. Mainly property is definitely um, a, a got tax advantages to it, you know, around the tax-free home. Um, and, uh, you know, things like, you know, potentially it's easier and more comfortable to negatively gear a big property um, because you've got the rental income there um, and you don't have to be so much concerned around the the volatility in the stock market as much as well. So it's not one versus the other. What I I do believe those things, at some point though, you're going to cap out. You can't just keep on buying property because you run out of income. And at this point, you start to shift and go, I've got enough properties right now. I've got enough equity. Why don't I really focus on shares and my super and all these other things? Um, 
you can't really sit in either camp. Shares, I'm only shares, I'm only property. No, you're missing a trick. You've got to be both and you've got to not forget about your super fund as well, which, you know, take ownership of it. It's your money. It's your share portfolio, I like to say. It's about 10% of your salary now. So it's huge. People actually do need to take, you know, control of their superannuation. You know, that's a huge chunk. You know, 10% is a lot. Um, I think, you know, like you were saying, you know, people don't want to take that risk with, like, you know, a margin loan and the potential for a margin call. So that does make a lot of sense. Um, I think, you know, to summarise, diversification, right? You should not have 10 properties and nothing in the market. You know, you should look at having a diversified portfolio of property, you know, residential, commercial, um, you know, international shares, Australian shares, even some different, you know, fixed interest and more defensive positions in your portfolio to kind of wait out that market volatility. I mean, There are a lot of flip sides with regards to the share market. You know, you don't have that stamp duty, you don't have those legal fees, and you do have that daily liquidity. Um, So, I mean, we could go on this, I guess, pros and cons and argument all day long. Um, You know, an interesting question for you, Chris, though, you know, do you think if properties were actually valued every day, you'd see similar volatility to the share market? Yes and no. So, technically, you property is valued every day because people are tracking their property like – (laughs) <laughs> There's their biggest asset, right? And they've got agents knocking on their door. They're always tracking what it's worth. Now, they don't know the exact value, but they do know roughly what it's worth, right? And, you know, and so potentially um, what happens in downtimes is that less properties sell. Um, and people have naturally got that real inherent bias where they think it's a good asset. And so they don't sell as many at that point. And so I don't think daily pricing of property would really affect things because most people who own property and good assets is driven by the owner-occupy market and they're living there for decades. Um, and so they don't, even if it's worth less tomorrow, it doesn't mean they're going to rush and sell. And so um, I do think that's one of the dangers of shares though because it is way more volatile over potentially short periods and it creates all these issues with behaviour. And we all understand, I completely agree with you, you know, drip feed your money in, forget about it, turn off your, lose your internet banking, logins to your, your share portfolio and just let it sit there and do its thing over a long time. People find it really hard to do that, especially some people look at it six times a day and then freak themselves out. And so people have got that more confidence. That's to do it. We had that last year, right? With um, everyone freaking out, the market came off, you know, over 30%. And, you know, we were telling them not to panic. You know, it, it's come back to the whole behavioural finance, which you probably see and like emotional biases with property and in um, the investment yep. industry, essentially. And I guess it really just comes down to, Chris, and, you know, you really highlighted this over this conversation. It's about finding the right property. We've had clients that have purchased a property 20 years ago and it's had no capital growth. Yeah, okay, great. The rental income pays for the, the loan. But there's no growth there. So, I think it comes down to quality investments, right? Doing your due diligence, not rushing into things. Take your time. Speak to an expert. Absolutely. We, we even yesterday, a client, uh, apartment in Brisbane, uh, he's worked with us for years. He bought this apartment before we, um, you know, started working together. I said to him straight away, day dot, shouldn't have bought that. You know, this is not going to work for you. Six years later, it's done nothing. He's been trying to get out of it. It's like, when I'm getting out of it, I've just got to get out of it at some point. Um, and that's very common and we see it all the time. And the, the the problem with property investors, people get a little bit of capacity and a little bit of cash and then they go and buy property and they come on this quantity strategy. And it's always about the number of properties. It's really an ego-driven thing, to be honest. I, I've got three properties. And the real thing is usually what we've seen, and bear in mind we've been speaking to property-focused investors for the last almost a decade now, so thousands of people, that people with quantity 
do not perform anywhere near as much as the people with quality and have a fewer number of properties. And that has been exasperated in the last 12 months because the quality assets are the ones that have gone through the roof. You know, we're talking much bigger returns in the regions and the outskirts and the apartments and the cheaper stuff. Um, and so really don't fall for that a number of properties thing. If you're going to get a properties, get a couple of good ones. That, that would be an amazing outcome, outcome versus, say, potentially having five poor ones. And so um, the big thing is you've got to be really careful, though, because the property market, like I said at the start, is unregulated. There's lots of buyers agents pushing stuff and there's a lot of buyers agents there pushing the quantity strategy and the reason they do it is it's easy for them to buy and they can get paid multiple times. If they buy four properties for you, they get paid four times and it's really easy for them to do their job because these assets are easy to buy. Um, and so just be really careful how you enter the property market. Um, and you do, don't be really careful going to a broker or a financial advisor or someone who only works with one property partner because what they do is they send all their clients to one person and that person can't possibly be an expert across the whole of Australia. They can't possibly understand all the different markets. Um, and they, they'll basically just be like, you know, going into a shop and then just buying the same product. Um, and um, so what we do as a business, we actually work with lots of different buyers agents. So for clients buying in Gold Coast, that would be a different buyers agent to Brisbane and, and different parts of Brisbane's different buyers agents. Sunshine Coast, you know, in Sydney, we work with over a dozen different buyers agents. Um, in Melbourne, the same thing. So you need a local area specific buyers agent um, who buys that property market every day for the last, you know, almost a decade. That's so true. And that's really quality advice to hear from your perspective. It's kind of using the analogy to what we talk about in the listed investment space is, you know, we're obviously Australian financial advisors. We know the Australian economy a lot better than someone sitting in the UK or the US. However, we will outsource to either ETFs or active fund managers if we're looking for a niche part of the market, like the best investment companies, growth companies based in India, right? Go to the source. And the other thing you said, which I think is just a key point kind of before we wrap up is it's all about quality. Less is more. And we say that so many times on a day-to-day basis to our clients. You want a high conviction portfolio, right? Less is more, high conviction in for the long haul, whether that's properties, shares, fixed interest, less is more. So I guess to wrap up, we ask our guests a very important question. Um, So you're not getting singled out here. We've asked everyone this. (laughs) Coffee, tea or tequila, what's your preference? I gave up alcohol at the start of this year. My wife was pregnant for the second time. So uh, I've had a drink all this year. So congratulations for me. I'm definitely, I bought a coffee machine a couple of, oh, I think it was maybe a year ago as well. That was not a good decision because my coffee intake has gone through the roof and I kind of see myself as a home barista. But right now it's a lemon and ginger tea right next to me. <laughs> That's so. it. I'm, uh, I mix You're it all a good up. husband giving up alcohol with your <laughs> wife. That's fantastic. I wish mine would do that yeah. with me. Yeah, it's a bit unfair if I'm sitting there with a nice glass of Shiraz next to her and looking at her belly. It's uh, So I've, I've taken it for the team. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's right. You might as well suffer together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> If you'd like to get in contact with either Candice or I or to find out more about Wealthful, the details are in the show notes below. You can also find Chris on LinkedIn. It's just Chris Bates that you need to search. You can also check out his website, which is www.wealthful.com.au. Mainly just if you want to learn more about myself, it's just, you know, obviously you can get in contact with the business or jump on LinkedIn. Obviously I post lots on there or listen to the podcast. So thanks for listening. Or check out his podcast, which is www.wealthful.com.au elephantintheroom.com.au Until next time, adus. 
Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.